Would you stand with me, please, as we read? Reading from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. The word of the Lord. When I was in college, I heard a, a story about a journalist who was following around uh, a priest and doing a story on him. And this priest was the priest that uh, performed the exorcism on the young child that the movie The Exorcist was based on. Now, uh, Hollywood had its fun with the story, so there wasn't, uh, in reality, there wasn't the head spinning and the, the green vomit and all that. It was a little bit different, but it was actually a story that still kind of made its way into popular culture. It kind of blew up. And so this uh, happened in St. Louis. They must have been possessed because they uh, weren't St. Louis Cardinals fans. Rest in peace. Yes. But nonetheless, the priest was followed around by this journalist wanting to know what happened and trying to do a profile on this character, this uh, kind of enigma that walked into this really dark situation. And this priest also taught at a, uh, at a school. And after it happened and broke into the media, uh, this priest was a quiet man kind of kept to himself. And he um, would walk around the campus from building to building throughout the day. And at certain times, the elementary school boys would run up, around, run up and surround him, and they'd make faces at him. And they'd act like demons, and they'd tease him, and they'd mock him. And the journalist said that the priest's response was always the same. He'd just keep walking forward with his head down, and he'd always say, Boys, 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 the devil's real. 
And I think the reality for us this morning, if we could just start with an admission, is that we don't really live with any notion that our lives are dramatically influenced by a spiritual battle that's being waged around us. We really don't live that way. We're Westerners. We don't think in those terms. And I know our culture certainly doesn't. Being a child of the modern West, the supernatural has just become a source of entertainment. At any time throughout the year, you can find at least three horror movies on appletrailers.com at any given time. You know, and effectively, you have the, this boiling down of the supernatural forces that are trying to draw good-looking college students to a cabin in the woods or to get them to press play on a, a possessed VHS tape. It just becomes these strange stories. It becomes entertainment that we can enjoy. We can enjoy the supernatural for 12 bucks on a Friday night. <clears throat> and I certainly have to admit as well that I'm a child of that. I'm a child of my culture, and it's still hard for me to imagine my life on spiritual terms. And one of the things that, uh, you know, people, as I talk to people throughout, um, throughout the years, and they've asked me about, you know, uh, India and why I go back every year, uh, you know, there's a number of reasons why, but one of the reasons I always say is that it always offers perspective. I can get out of this box called Western Christianity and kind of open my eyes up to some things that I really have a harder time seeing here. I was walk, talking with the Nunth two years ago, and every time we're together, you know, it's been a year that we've been apart, and so I'm trying to get caught up with him, and I ask him, you know, what's, what's been going on in the deep forest? You know, what are the people coming up and asking prayer for? And uh, it's a good way of kind of knowing what the needs are, you know, what they're asking prayer for. And he said, he started having this long list of things that, you know, as he usually does, and he always is so insightful as to what the needs of the deep forest are. And he told me this one particular story where a lady came up to him and said, would you please pray for my daughter? I wake up at night, and she's destroying things in the hut. She's banging pots and pans, and she's clanging all over the place, and she's breaking things. And I kind of remember hearing him say that, and I just thought it was odd, you know, because that's just not usually the type of request you get in the deep forest. And uh, I said, well, that's strange. Is, um, was her, is her daughter just a rebellious teenager? You know, and he goes, oh, no, no, no. He said, she's praying for her daughter. She's asking for her daughter to be delivered from evil spirits because her daughter's nine months old. Nine months. Can't walk during the day, but at night she will wake up and her nine-month-old daughter is breaking things in the hut and walking around. I told my wife that story for the first time this week, and she just got chills. My son's not much younger than that. And Paul would tell us this morning, we're called to step into that reality. We're called to step into that reality because we have an enemy that's at work. We have an enemy that's at work that wants to attack you, wants to attack your family, your children, this church. There's no little safe place that we can find in our lives where the enemy doesn't want to jump in and do battle and wage war against us. You have a profound enemy, and you're in a profound war. And Paul is saying this morning as he closes Ephesians, he's leaving us with the words effectively to say, boys, 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 the devil is real. Do you not know? But I think he leaves us with more than that, and he gives us two things. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 24, he leaves us with a mindset, and he leaves us with a mission. That everything that he said up until this point, excuse me, Everything he said up until this point has led him to this conclusion. Finally, brothers, finally, 
take on this new mindset that you're in a spiritual battle and to embrace this new mission. It's the capstone for the argument that he's been making all this time of who we are in Christ. So for us to understand this mindset, let's start in verse 12 and then we'll work back to verses 10 and 11. In verse 12, we all probably know it to some, in some form or fashion by heart, in some variation. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of this present darkness. Paul is encouraging us to adopt this new mindset that helps us understand that he would be happy today if we left saying, yes, this mindset gives me two things, that one, I know who my enemy is, and I know that I am in a spiritual battle, a profound one. But the problem is if we don't adopt that mindset, then we end up making the mistake of reversing verse 12. We just flip it. And so we say, we wrestle not against rulers and authorities and powers in, over this present darkness. We actually wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against others. That's our real enemy. So it looks like this. We make the mistake of not understanding who our true enemy is. And so on the day-to-day, we can do things. Uh, we can say, I wrestle not against rulers and powers and authorities over this present darkness. I wrestle against Democrats and anybody that doesn't agree with me politically. I wrestle against Republicans and conservatives. Now, don't get me wrong. It's fine to have an opinion. And I love the freedoms that our government has given us. It's a gift to us. But we often take temporal realities and we define ourselves by them. And anybody that doesn't agree with them, they just kind of become an enemy. Which is why you can see all the time, especially during this season, that we can talk about a political candidate that's our favorite with far more passion and vigor than we ever hear them talk about Jesus Christ or his policies his law of love and justice. We create enemies of flesh and blood all the time. Or we can say, I wrestle not against rulers and powers and authorities in this present darkness. My enemy is my spouse. My enemy is my spouse. That The way our relationship goes, it's effectively just one peace time to war time and back and forth. If you treat me that way, then I'll treat you this way. If you bomb me, then I'll bomb you. It's the same way we talk about Al-Qaeda and ISIS. That's the same logic that we use. Paul is trying to get us to say that is not our enemy. We have a deeper, more powerful enemy than that. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not a lower middle class lifestyle that we can just work ourselves to death trying to keep up. Our enemy is not our coworkers that don't value us or vindicate us And don't give us the promotions as quickly. And so it's easy to make them enemies and we're always plotting and trying to figure out ways to get ahead and we're willing to step on them. And we can't see our lives or our our jobs apart from what they benefit and give to us as opposed to some place that God has placed us. And I think what's happening here is that Paul is saying we don't wrestle against flesh and blood And he's referring back to Ephesians, at the very end of Ephesians 2, when Paul says that in Christ, the wall of hostility between all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, the dividing line, the wall of hostility that defines all of humanity, that wall of hostility has been broken down in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing else in this world that can define us apart from that. That now, in Christ, there's no male or female, nor slave, Scythian, free, barbarian, or Greek, All of those dividing lines have been dissolved. And now the one thing that determines all of humanity is whether or not you are in Christ. 
whether or not you are in the one that went to his enemies and made them his family, whether or not you are the one that you are in the one who loves those who persecute him, the one, whether you, know, you are in the one who truly knows the power of sin and who our true enemy is. And let's remember for a second who's writing this. It's Paul. And he says at the end of this passage, and pray for me as I am in prison. He's in prison in the biggest empire on the planet. He's not complaining about a situation or wanting to elect a new Caesar or somebody that wronged him and betrayed him. He asked for the Ephesians to pray for him so that he would boldly proclaim the gospel so that he could continue to live out the reality that that wall of hostility is broken down. And that behind this veil and this curtain is a spiritual battle that he needs to wage war against with the truth and peace of the gospel. And I think if we look closely, the enemies that we choose for ourselves and fight against is just a, is just a picture of what our heart truly values and the victory that we really want to live in. The victory that we think will really give us peace. The victory that we think will really give us freedom in our, the kingdom now. But the danger is that sooner or later, if, it is not, if we do not have a right understanding of who our enemy is, sooner or later, things are going to fall apart. Because hardship is going to happen and suffering is going to happen to you and you're not going to know what to do. You're going to be confused. You're not going to know what to do and you're going to be caught off guard. And you're going to realize that you've been fighting the wrong battle against the wrong enemy and you've put on the wrong armor and you feel completely and utterly powerless. Because the reality is you have a much bigger enemy waging war against you. So if we stop for a second, Paul is urging us to understand that we live in a spiritual battle and to adopt this mindset and that our enemy is no longer flesh and blood, but it's the principalities and powers of the air so that you will be drawn closer to Jesus and you will recognize that you are called to live in his victory. You are called not just to recognize we live in a spiritual battle, but you're called to understand that you're called to live in the victory of our Savior. And what a profound invitation that is. So this morning, you know, we can, well, if we don't adopt that mindset of knowing who our true enemy really is, and we substitute it for other things, then inevitably we just play right into the schemes of the devil, which is exactly what he warned us against in verse 11. He says, therefore, be strong in the Lord so that we would know the schemes of the devil. We have to ask the question then, if we want to adopt this mindset that we are in a spiritual battle, then what, is, what, what, what are the schemes of the devil? Well, the truth is, uh, it's quite mysterious. We do not actually know a lot about the devil. There's not a lot of literature in the scriptures that is written on him. We only see him in snapshots and glimpses. But we're certainly given enough. We're certainly given enough to understand how he operates. I think we can actually understand uh, a number of things about who our enemy truly is by the names that Scripture gives to him. It gives him a lot of names. Satan, uh, the deceiver. But we'll look at two this morning. One is that Jesus calls him the father of lies. Jesus calls him the father of lies. Basically saying that he's a liar. Now, <clears throat> it's easy to think of kind of Satan as this powerful kind of Voldemort-type figure, all right? This supernatural, magical being. 
But the picture of him that Jesus gives and the scriptures give is that he's far more powerful because he's like Grimo Wormtongue in the two towers, whispering in the ear of King Theoden of Rohan, dehumanizing him and getting him to believe his lies to where the kingdom is falling apart and he's actually dividing his own people. So you have to really, to understand why he's the father of lies, you have to understand the power of a lie. The power of believing in something that's not true and the damage that that causes. Quick case in point, the value of human life. Somewhere along the line, we believed the lie that life does not begin at conception. And that life is not worth protecting in every stage of its development. That's caused a lot of damage. To believe that lie and how it's grown. Or to think about the lie that I can own you and enslave you because your skin is simply darker than mine. That's a powerful lie. The power of a lie is seen in the, in the fact that, that he tells us the lies that we want to hear. And he knows exactly what a sinful heart wants to hear. A lie is a powerful thing when you combine it with a sinful heart. But in this passage, Paul, talks, talks, uh, Paul uses the term devil, which comes from uh, a Greek verb, to scatter, to throw apart. And so anytime in your scriptures when you read and you see the devil, you can just maybe interpret that as he's the great divider. He's the, great one, he's the one who brings division and causes us to wage war against one another. And the schemes of the devil are meant to divide us and any possible sense of unity that we could possibly have. And I don't think that, you know, the devil just wants to destroy us in broad categories. I think that his schemes are designed in such a way that when we believe the lie, he can sit back and watch us destroy ourselves. That the lie takes on a life of its own and through his desire to destroy us, we willfully destroy ourselves. We destroy others. Because it's hard to focus on the mission that God has for us if we're waging war against one another. It's hard for us to appreciate the purpose and mission that God has for my family if my marriage is just in wartime all the time. And it's hard for me to understand the mission that God has for me in my, my job and in my relationships if I understand that they're the wrong enemy or I use them for simply my own benefit. I think the devil is about the business of trying to convince us and lie to us and get us to pull, put the wall of hostility back up. And when we do, we have rendered ourselves completely ineffective for the church and the mission that it's called to live out. So we have two verses here. We have verse 11 that says, uh, you know, verse 11 that talks about the schemes of the devil. Then over here, in verse 12, the rulers and authorities and powers of this present darkness. So you kind of have the works of the devil, and then you have this bigger structure of sin that seems to be over the present darkness of this world. How does that work? I think we have to understand that, uh, you know, particularly in Revelation, but the Scriptures kind of as the climax of that, but the Scriptures have always presented evil, as evil isn't um, just like these, uh, like everybody's kind of like evil in their own way, in their own kind of like, well, I sinned here and that's evil. It's not just these individual acts that are bad. Of course it is. But evil is much bigger than that because evil will institutionalize itself and create systems of oppression, injustice, destruction. 
and corruption. It institutionalizes itself all the time and uses the structures and systems of this world to do it. So think about it this way. From the modern West perspective, you know, like we talked about, we don't generally live with an idea that we're in a spiritual battle. And we treat the problem of evil in uh, very simple ways, and we, we simplify the problem of evil. And so we say that, well, you know, culturally, we understand now that we can r- eradicate and solve the problem of evil, evil through technological advancement. Or we say that we can solve the problem of evil through uh, social progress, through good and right education. That's how we can solve the problem of evil. And it minimizes the power and existence of evil in tremendous and profound ways itself. I think if Paul could, you know, walk in or something for a second and he could see the last century alone of our world's history, he might respond to that notion and say, so you think that Hitler wouldn't have actually killed ten, over 10 million of his own people and mobilized an entire nation to be a death machine simply because he would have had more self-esteem classes in elementary school. Or uh, Mao Zedong, the emperor of China, killing 50 million of his own people, which is a conservative estimate. We think that he wouldn't have done that if he just would have had a few more tolerance classes. Not to mention the damage that was caused by all of the other dictators of Pol Pots, the Kim Jong-ils, the Kim Rogue, the apartheid. All of the genocide that has happened in the last century alone have all happened by developed countries, which tells us that evil is so deceptive that the more we understand them, even the more technology we develop, we just find more efficient ways of killing and destroying one another. We have it in our own country, systems of oppression and corruption, Our country supports the abortion of children, human beings. You see, the lie creeps in, and it begins to take on a life of its own, and it institutionalizes itself into a system that promotes evil and allows it to flourish. And that's exactly what Paul tells us that we're supposed to go to war with. We're to go up against that corruption and that injustice that we see. But if we're going to do that, we better be prepared because that's a big enemy and that's a big battle, which is why he says the only thing that's going to prepare you is for you to dress yourself in the very armor and power of God. What an invitation that is. To put on the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, to grab the sword of truth, to have readiness clothing our feet, it's an image of a warrior that's ready for battle. But we, you know, is Paul just using you know, a Roman centurion image just to describe the Christian soldier? You know, Get yourself ready for battle. He's not doing that. He's actually building on what he said earlier in Ephesians 5.1 when he said, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. And he hasn't stopped talking about that since that we are imitators of God. So Paul is actually in this command for us to put on the armor of God. He's describing, or he's telling us to become like God himself. Where does he get that? In the Old Testament, if you look at the scriptures, the Old Testament has, um, all throughout the scriptures, 
uh, especially the Psalms, all of these moments where Israel praises God for his intervention in battle on their behalf. Well, part of that is because that's how Israel's story started. When they were brought out of Egypt and they were saved from Pharaoh, they get brought to the Red Sea, but then Pharaoh's army comes in behind and they're trapped between the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh. And the people cry out to Moses, and Moses says, you have nothing to do but to stand firm and be silent, because today the Lord your God will fight for you, and the enemy you see today you will no longer see forever. And God destroys the Egyptians. And this is the story that began Israel's story as a people. That their God is a warrior God came from our call to worship this morning, that our God is a fortress. Military terms to describe God. And Paul is doing the same thing that, you know, theologians have come to describe these instances where God fights on behalf of his people and prepares himself for battle as the divine warrior. The divine warrior preparing himself to rise up against the evil and injustice in the world. And Paul uses this language when he says to put on the armor of God. He's actually borrowing from Isaiah in Isaiah eleven fifty two and 59. Three instances where God prepares himself with these same things that we're called to put on to prepare to go to battle. And to defeat evil and injustice and brokenness and sin. But Psalm 59, there's a particular, uh, it takes a bit of a turn. Because in Psalm 59, it says that God is putting on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, and he's going to war against the evil that he sees, but he's also going up against Israel. Flips in Isaiah 59 that he's now going up against Israel. Why is that? It says in the entire chapter that they have become a people that have rejected truth and prefer lies. They've become a people that reject righteousness and love their unrighteousness and defend their disobedience. They practice injustice. They oppress the poor. Their laws are unjust and their mouths are filled with lies that flow out of their hearts. And instead of warring against evil, they've created a culture and a people that allow it to flourish. And they stopped being the people who they were called to be. And they no longer look like the people of God in the light to the nations. Instead, they looked like the nations. They wanted to look like the nations and their gods that were built on the lies and false promises of the enemy. That were built on the division that he creates. And so God deals with it. And he brings his divine champion, and he deals with both. Israel's enemies and Israel. He brings Jesus, the true divine warrior. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, he says, Now remember, that's your story. That was your story. You used to walk in that way. You used to walk in the lies of the enemy, according to the the power at work in the sons of disobedience, You walked according to the ruler of the the power of the air, Satan. That was your story. But remember, Christian, that Jesus interrupted it. Jesus interrupted it while you were still an enemy and brought you into his family and has given you new purpose because now you are a son and daughter of God and you are called to imitate your Savior. 
That is Paul's perspective as he tries to tell us who we are. So when he says in, uh, for us to put on the armor of God and to imitate God, he's telling us that you, church, are now, because the Spirit of God is within you and your, his life fills you, you are now the divine warrior. You are the divine warrior that is called to be an instrument that goes out to fight the evil and corruption and injustice in the world. What an invitation that is. That you are called to clothe yourself in the very power of God and be the divine warrior on this earth. That's what we are, church. I think one of my, well, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, I guess if you're allowed to have favorite stories in the Bible, I do, but uh, is the Gerasene demoniac. It's the story where Jesus crosses the Red Sea and uh, or crosses the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the storm. A little reinterpretation there for you. Um, he crosses the Sea of Galilee after the storm, and then he comes up over the hill, come across the Gerasene demoniac, one that has been unbelievably violent, won't let anybody get close, possessed by legion. And Jesus just walks over the hill, and the, and the demon immediately responds and says, O oh, Son of God, have you come to torment me before the time? Jesus never says a word. He just simply walks over the hill. And as soon as that legion of spiritual beings see the Son of God, they beg him for mercy before he ever even has to open his mouth. You are filled with that kind of power. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. So Paul is saying at the end of this, in a very subtle and powerful way at the same time, my friend, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what you've been called to? Do you know that you are clothed in immense power? So what does it look like for us to adopt this mindset and this mission and for us to truly see ourselves as the divine warrior and to put on that armor of God? Well, if we just take the structure of last week's passage from Ephesians 5, what about your personal life, your children? It's time to rededicate yourself to teaching your children about Jesus and to, and to truly dedicate yourself to praying for them and with them because they are going to grow up in a world that's filled with a lot more lies than you or I had to. They're growing daily. Or maybe in your marriage, you know, when was the last time you read the Bible with your spouse and you talked about your faith and your struggles together? When was the last time you, you sat down and you prayed together? Wouldn't it be so encouraging if your, your spouse came to you and said, Sweetie, I've been praying for you all week. I've been praying for you and I love you. Or maybe if it's even worse than that and your home has been a war zone, it's time to understand that your enemy is not flesh and blood. Your enemy is not flesh and blood whatsoever and it's time to repent and say, I'm sorry that I've treated you like my enemy. Your children and your marriage need you to imitate the divine warrior and to bring the truth and righteousness and peace and hope of the gospel and to go to war against the evil that exists. 
or what about in your job that, uh, or our neighborhoods, the ways and places that it's so easy to also put up dividing walls and walls of hostility. Maybe it's time to take seriously to love that neighbor next to you as yourself, to see your coworkers as more than just colleagues, but as people that we don't put up dividing walls against, but people that are profoundly influenced and under the seduction of the lies of the enemy that desperately need the divine warrior to come and bring truth. People that are longing and thirsty for the truth of the gospel. What about us as a church corporately? We can imitate it in our personal lives, but also how do we as a church corporately, as the one new man that Paul talks about, imitate the divine warrior? How do we imitate the divine warrior and put on the armor of God as a church for our community and for our world? Well, maybe it's... uh, Well, part of this is Paul doesn't exactly give us exact ways of how. He didn't say in Ephesians 6, and this is how you're going to do it for the rest of time. He takes this truth and he leaves it up to us and in every time and in every context to figure out what it means for us as stories, as sins, as cultures change. We're to figure out how do we bring truth and righteousness and hope and peace and the word of God into the culture in a profound and powerful way. So what does that mean for us? This week, Ryan and I sat outside and we just kind of dreamed for a little bit of what it would look like if we embodied this reality of being the divine warrior as a church for our community. What if you, uh, you started, what if we, we as a church started praying for 5 and 10 and 20 conversions next year? What if we started praying for people to actually convert? That we wouldn't just grow because somebody came from across town, which if you have, you are so welcome here. And you're part of our family. But we also want to grow in the way where the kingdom is taking ground. Where the kingdom is actually coming in and saying, you are no longer a, fa- or a child of the father of lies. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You know, what if you owned a business and you decided to give one, five, or 10% of your yearly income and profit, or your yearly profit from your business to bring children out of the deep forest and to support the pastors? And what if you said, you know, my business is going to rescue a girl from the Kali Ghat this year? I'm going to pull her out and I'm going to give her a new life because Jesus has given me a new life. And I'm going to go to war on behalf of a little girl that desperately needs a divine warrior to intervene in her unbelievably hopeless situation. What if we began to think long and hard about the ways that we can love those that are less fortunate than us that live just a few blocks down the street? They're in our backyard. Perhaps that's on, on us. But we need to move towards them in a way that says there's no dividing wall of hostility. Jesus loves you and so do I. Come and eat, friend. Let me serve you and love you. And the truth is, I bet some of you are really good at that. You just don't know it. You just haven't sat down and figured out ways. And we have to think creatively about for our time and in our place. And I bet a lot of you are going to be tremendous at it. You've got tremendously insightful ideas. I know because some of you have actually told me. I'd love for us to do some of the things that you've talked about. That is a gift. God is preparing you for battle. And so let's walk in that together. Let's think creatively about who we're called to be. These are just a few things, and I think one of these days we're going to, I think one of these days we're going to have to build a new church. What if part of the budget to build a new church and a building also, you know, Ryan brought this up this week, and it was a beautiful idea of us building a couple of homes on the property so that we could help someone in need. We could build a home that if a woman needed to escape an abusive situation, she can come and find rest and safety. We can come and we can build a home for an ex-convict that is trying to get back on their feet. But it's hard. 
when you have ex-con attached to your name. Or it's a family that lost their job and is just living out of their car. I guarantee you they will, it will be used if we build it. We set up ministries in this church where we could actually remove some of the shame that is upon women and the guilt that have, that have had abortions. Set up a ministry to love them. Or what about uh, a ministry that um, invites um, abused women? They're so afraid to go to the police to break up their family, but they want someone to talk to. Or we, we become a place where alcoholics sober up. The only way that happens is when we realize who our enemy is and what we're empowered and called to do and become. You know, in all of these things, Paul wants us to embrace the mindset and the mission that the gospel gives us because when we embrace the true enemy and when we embrace our identity as the divine warrior in the world, we are freed from the silly temporal ways that we define ourselves and the damaging ways that we define our enemies as flesh and blood. And now we can really be used to do some damage for the kingdom. With this mindset and mission, Paul is giving us an invitation to imagine. What would it be like if we became that divine warrior? You know, in closing, uh, I would say this, that uh, you know, part of Ryan and I's conversation this week is that, you know, if I can speak for both of us, we're not going anywhere. We're not looking to leave or anything like that. We love Rockwell Press. This is our church. It's a place that we, we love dearly. I'd love to clock out of this church in 50 years. Merriam and Barriam is my attitude. But the truth is, is that, you know, there's going to be people that come and go. God will write the stories for them. But for a lot of us, we're going to be here. We're going to be here for the next three, four, five decades until we're gone. The Lord takes us home. We have a lot of time to spend together. That's a lot of time to do some damage. What could we become in a lifetime together of growing in Christ's likeness and becoming a divine warrior for this community and for our world? Rockwell Prez, stand fast. You have a powerful enemy, but you have a far more powerful Savior that invites you to stand in the power of his might. Dress yourself in his armor, and let's do that together because we have got a lot of work to do. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your deliverance. We thank you that our story is no longer the same, that we no longer walk according to the prince of the power of the air, but we walk according to the one who is truth and love and power. We belong to you. Nourish us as we come to the table. For this, O Lord, we pray. And everybody said, Amen.